For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is Sowing Joy. And if the Lord allows, this will be the first of two sermons that I preach today on this topic. During this hour for the morning, we're considering what joy is and how we can have it. Later today, we'll focus on how we can help and counsel others who need it. Sowing joy and spreading joy. Those are our two sermons for today. For this morning, as we think about what joy is and how we can get it, I wanna outline our sermon under three points. And I'm gonna use the illustration of a lantern. First, we'll consider the essence of joy. And this is like the flame of the lantern. What is joy? How can we define it? Second, we'll look at the source of joy and Imagine the gas or the oil that provides fuel for the lantern. Where does true joy come from? What motivates joy? Lastly, we'll consider the attainment of joy. And this is like the warm glow that we feel from the lantern after it's lit. Since we know what joy is and where it comes from, we'll discuss how we can get it and how we can experience its warm glow. So, the essence of joy or the flame, the source of joy, or the oil for the lantern, and then the attainment of joy, or the warm glow from the lantern. So first, the essence of joy. We're setting out to learn something of Christian joy, and I hope that that's a pertinent topic to you this morning. What is joy? Here's our proposition. Christian joy, or spiritual joy, is a long-term gladness based on the proven genuineness of our faith, the person and work of Christ, and the collective progress of the church. And it's attained through an understanding of the truth that we apply by the Holy Spirit in the putting off of wrong thoughts and the putting on of right thoughts. Do you see our outline in that definition? Let me say it again. Think of those three points, the essence of joy, the source of joy, and the attainment of joy. Christian joy, or spiritual joy, is a long-term gladness That's the what of joy. That's the flame of the lantern. And it's based on the proven genuineness of our faith, the person and work of Christ, and our collective progress in the faith. That's the source of joy. That's like the fuel that lights the lantern. And it's attained when we understand the truth and when we apply the truth by the Holy Spirit when we put off wrong thoughts and we put on right thoughts. And that's like how we attain to the warm glow that we experience from the lantern. So let's talk about the flame of the lantern. Let's talk about the essence of joy for a minute. What is joy? In a nutshell, you could say that joy is the long-term emotional effect that the application of good news has on the Christian. I'll say it again. Joy is the long-term emotional effect that the application of good news has on us. Why do I say long-term? Because in the long term, we have a joy that can't be shaken by any of our circumstances. Because this joy is a response to the gospel message. This joy is based on the unchanging character of God. In the short term, we can rejoice for all sorts of things that God does for us. We can rejoice at the blessedness of marriage or other temporal blessings that God may give us, and that's good. 
but that's not the kind of joy that I'm talking about this morning. That's not the kind of joy that we're focused on. We're going to talk about the long-term joy that's based on the unshakable truths of the gospel. Why do I say that joy is an emotional effect? Maybe that description makes you a little uncomfortable. What does emotion have to do with Christianity? Remember, Jesus Christ is Lord not only of your will or your conscience, but he's Lord of you, all of you. That includes your emotions. All of your emotions are to be submitted to him. And there's a biblical basis for saying that joy is what we might call an emotional effect. I'll prove it in a minute. Why do I say that joy is an emotional effect that the application of good news has on us? I'm using that word specifically, the application of good news. Notice, I didn't just say that it was a response to good news, but the application of good news. Joy is the way that we feel when our hopes are realized. That's really at the heart of it. Joy is related to hope because when hope is realized, it transforms into something else. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Paul, he's talking about hope. He's talking about hope and he says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, right? For who hopes for what he already sees? You see what he's saying? People have hope when they're looking forward to something, when they're expecting to get something that they need. At the resurrection, for instance, hope is going to be done away with. What is there left to hope for when you're resurrected? They already have it. They already have their hope. So what do they have then? They don't have hope anymore. Now they have joy. So joy is the effect that the application of good news has on us, you see? Joy is what we feel when our hopes become reality. So what have I said? What have I said? I've made an assertion to you. Listen to the beginning of that proposition again. Christian joy or spiritual joy is a long-term gladness. And when I say it's a long-term gladness, I'm saying that Christian joy is the long-term or steady emotional effect that the application of good news has on the Christian. Where do we see this in the Bible? Turn in your Bibles to John 16. John 16. John 16. And this passage is in the midst of a section of the Gospel of John, historically referred to as the farewell discourse. These are Jesus' final sayings for the disciples prior to his crucifixion. He's, he's going to be crucified. He's going into the heart of Jerusalem. And before then, he gives this thing, the farewell discourse. And in the farewell discourse, Jesus has much to say about the long-term spiritual joy that we're considering. John 16. And look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. Do you see the emotional state that Jesus is saying his disciples will experience? They'll weep. They'll lament. Those are emotions. But what about the world? What kind of emotional response will the world have when Christ is put to death? But the world will rejoice. You see, you see how you kind of say the word joy? When you say rejoice, it's the same way in Greek. It's the same way in Greek as it is in English. We get our word rejoice from the word joy. To rejoice then is to take joy in something. And you can see very clearly here that it's in contrast to the emotional state of weeping and lamenting. He says, weeping and lamenting on the one hand, rejoicing on the other. You see that? They're opposites. The emotional response of the disciples to Jesus being put to death is weeping. And the emotional response that the world has is rejoicing. Okay, keep reading. He says, you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. You see that? 
And if you don't see it, if you didn't see it before, you certainly should now. Joy involves the emotions, according to the Bible. Joy is an emotional response. Joy is an emotional effect of the application of good news. So we've seen that joy is indeed an emotional effect. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. He says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Can you see that the woman here, she has a certain emotional response to the pain of childbirth, right? But when she holds the baby, when there's been a realization of her hope, that's when her emotional state changes. She rejoices. She no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has actually, truly, really been born into the world and that baby is hers. Before she had the expectation of a baby and that was hope. Now it's taken the form of joy because she actually has her baby. You see how this applies to my definition? The kind of Christian joy that we're referring to this morning is a result of gospel truths being applied and realized in our lives. Okay, verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Very clearly, Jesus is telling the disciples that they will experience an unshakable and unchangeable joy when he rises from the dead. You see that? That's why I'm telling you that Christian joy is long-term. There are certain gospel truths that have already been realized in our Christian life that afford us an unshakable and unchangeable long-term joy. Jesus says, no one will take away your joy from you. It's long-term. So hopefully by now I've proven to you that Christian joy is the long-term or steady emotional effect that the application of good news has on the Christian. The kind of joy that we're defining is an emotion. It is long-term and it is the result of having our hopes actually realized. Now, Before moving on, I want to make a couple of important qualifications very briefly when we're talking about Christian joy. My first qualification is that there is such a thing as a false joy that has true premises. We're talking about Christian joy. Christian joy comes from understanding and apprehending gospel truth. And there is a way that you can respond to gospel truth and it be a false joy. Why do I see that? Just because someone has an understanding of the truth and they respond joyfully, that doesn't mean that their joy is the kind of spiritual joy that we're talking about today. Consider the soils. You remember the parable of the four soils? The rocky soil is what we're interested in with respect to joy. Jesus says, the one on whom seed was sown, that seed is the gospel, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Church family, you listen to me. You listen to me. This is critical for you to get. Because some of you have lost family members. Some of you are going through financial difficulties. Some of you temporarily are speaking, temporarily speaking, are doing just fine. But all of you must be sharply warned. We're talking about true joy this morning because we're unmistakably going through a hard time, individually in many cases, and collectively through our recent um, difficulties, through our recent trial. So we need joy. 
But you listen to me. The rocky soil falls away because the seed did not take deep root. If you are to have true, lasting Christian joy, then the gospel must find its way into your heart. Otherwise, your trials will uproot you. And they'll uproot you because you discover that the gospel requires you to prioritize it above all else. True joy is only found when our soul satisfaction is ultimately and entirely founded upon gospel truths. Receiving the good news without understanding that the gospel is going to cost you your life is only going to result in a very short-lived joy. The second qualification that I wanted to make is that there is a time for weeping. There is a time for weeping. We're after Christian joy, yes, but there is a time for weeping. It's inappropriate to rejoice at everything. That's my point. It's inappropriate to rejoice at everything. Some people, the way they see it, you have to rejoice at everything. God commands us to rejoice, right? Yes, but he commands us to rejoice about certain things. For example, it's wrong to take joy in sin. That's common sense. And it's biblical. James says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. James actually tells us that our joy needs to be turned into gloom. So which is it? Am I supposed to have joy or not? You're called to take joy in some things and to be sorrowful over other things. And it's okay, biblically speaking, it's okay to be sorrowful about things that aren't even necessarily sinful. It's okay to be sorrowful about death and not to rejoice at it. Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. He was sinless in that. He was perfect in that. It's okay to be sorrowful about many things in the Christian life. As Solomon says, he says this in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon says, there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. With respect to the joy that we're talking about today, it is a lasting and unshakable gladness that we have on the basis of gospel truths, but it transcends the sorrow that we may feel for a moment. The gospel, the, the gospel joy that we're talking about, it, it exists alongside our sorrows. There is such a thing as a righteous sorrow, and there is such a thing as a sinful sorrow. There is such a thing as a righteous joy, and there is indeed such a thing as a sinful kind of joy. It takes discernment, and it takes thoughtfulness to distinguish between these things. Suffice it to say, Christian joy is the long-term emotional effect that the application of good news has on the Christian. And watch out, there is such a thing as a false joy. You can prevent it by making sure that the gospel's taken deep root within you, deep root within the soil of your heart. And remember, attaining to Christian joy doesn't mean that sorrowing and grieving is necessarily wrong. It's okay to be sad in some cases. Christian joy transcends temporal sorrows because in those moments it takes the form of hope. And one day our hope is going to be turned into joy. One day God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now, we've talked about the essence of joy. Now we're moving from talking about the flame of the lantern to the fuel of the lantern. Somebody might say, I know what joy is, but what motivates me to joy? What's the motivation of joy? What's the spring of joy? What's the fuel that lights the lantern of joy? In a word, why should you be joyful? Why should I be joyful? And I want to consider this under three headings. If I was smart with my lantern analogy, I would have said the fuel is like, is like the match and it's like the oil and it's like the wick. That way I could have three pieces to the, the fuel of the lantern, but I didn't do that. So I want to consider this under three headings. It's all just the fuel. It's three parts of the fuel, however you want to think of it. In a word, why should I be joyful? Our joy, 
Our joy is based on one, the proven genuineness of our faith. Two, the person and work of Christ. And three, our collective progress in the faith. The proven genuineness of our faith, the person and work of Christ, and our collective progress in the faith. Those are our sources of joy in the Christian life. First, our long-term and unshakable joy is indeed based on the proven genuineness of our faith. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And hopefully, since we got much of the foundational stuff established at the outset, hopefully we'll be able to move a little bit faster. 1 Peter chapter 1, and begin reading in verse 3. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice with me. The result of our new birth is that we would have a living hope, right? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. So notice with me that the result of our new birth, him causing us to be born again, is that we would have a living hope. And if you remember from earlier, hope and joy, they have a close connection, okay? Joy is the way that we feel when our hopes are realized. And Peter, he says that our hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he says there. And what does Peter say is the intention of God in causing us to be born again through Christ's resurrection? Verse four, what's his intention in causing us to be born again? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You see how this hope, you see how this hope that we have, it's not realized yet. It's reserved in heaven for us. So what then? Why should I take you to this text if it's talking about hope, right? Let's keep reading. This hope is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, this protection that he's talking about, he says you you are protected by the power of God. When is this protection happening? We're protected right now, brothers. God's power is protecting us. You see the link between hope and joy here? We have a hope and a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is a firm hope because it's imperishable. It's impossible to be taken away. And if it's impossible to be taken away, then God will preserve us and he will protect us by his power until we attain to it. So that's grounds for present joy because God is protecting me even now. My hope is imperishable and he's doing it by the faith that I have even right now. That's that's cause for present joy. And that's why Peter goes on and he says, in this you greatly, what? Rejoice. I can have joy this very hour because I know that God is protecting me by omnipotent power through faith so that I can certainly reach a fuller joy when my hope is realized on the last day. This kind of joy can transcend any trial. If your faith is proven and you know that God is working in you, what joy that produces in the Christian what a personal work that my God is working in me to preserve me. 
I know that he began a good work in me, so I know he's gonna complete it. My hope is turning to joy even now because I'm so sure that it will come to pass. Notice what he says. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You see how my joy, when it's based on Christ's resurrection, when my joy is based on the power of God protecting me, You see how my joy transcends my distress over various trials? My joy, in other words, is based on the work of Christ manifested in my life. That's what my joy, in part, is based on, is Christ's work in my life. It's hope realized. But here's a question. Here's a question. How do I know that my faith is the kind of faith that's protected by omnipotent power, right? We're talking about a faith that produces joy. When I know that the faith that I have is true, when I know that the faith that I have is protected by omnipotent power, that produces joy in me. But the question is, do I have true faith? Is this the faith that God protects by omnipotent power? Keep reading. He says, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look closer. Our faith has to be proven. If my faith doesn't last, it's a false faith. It's not that you can have true faith and then fall away. Your faith has to be proven. You see that in the text? That's what the Bible says. If your Bible is true, it will last. If it's false, it won't. Your faith has to be tested. And brothers, that's why we can rejoice at our various trials. Because when we trust the Lord in the midst of trials, our faith is proven to be true. When we respond to our trials the way that a Christian responds, that proves that our faith is genuine. And that's, that's grounds for present joy, because we know that we're protected by omnipotent power. As James says, here's what James says. He says something very similar. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Why should I take joy in trials, James? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What's the point? The point is that the Bible teaches us everywhere that we should rejoice at trials because they prove our faith to be true. And brothers, if your faith is true, you should be filled with joy because you know with certainty that you'll reach the hope reserved in heaven for you. Our long-term and unshakable joy is in part based on the proven genuineness of our faith. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what 1 Peter 1 teaches. What's the application? When the Lord puts you through a trial, whatever it is, let that trial fill you with joy. You should actually take joy in the fact that God sends a trial your way. Whatever it is, whatever it may be, relational trials, being mistreated, being sinned against, physical trials, illness, discomfort, sickness, death, persecution for the faith, whatever kind of trial we're talking about, stop complaining and start rejoicing. Do you realize God is proving the genuineness of your faith by these trials? See it as an opportunity for the gold of your faith to be purified. Take joy in the fact that God is producing endurance in you. To the extent that you respond to your trials the way that a Christian responds, to that extent you will grow in joy. So repent of responding to your trials the way that a heathen does. Your Christian joy is in part based on the proven genuineness of your faith. Second, we're still talking about the fuel of the lantern. We're still talking about our motivation to joy. We've said that 
First, it is in part based on the proven genuineness of our faith. Second, our long-term and unshakable joy is based on the person and work of Christ. And in order to magnify Christ, what I would think is to put Christ first and then the proven genuineness of my faith second. But actually, First Peter has it in the other order, so I kept his order. And we're still in First Peter chapter one. Our unshakable joy is based on the person and work of Christ. Keep reading in verse eight. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, listen to this, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of joy, and full of glory, I'm sorry. I can't even tell it. I can't even tell you what my joy is like, what this experience of joy is like, what rejoicing in Jesus Christ is like. That's how full of glory it is. Believe me, church family, you want this kind of joy. Do you want to cast away the gloomy perception that you have of the Lord's dealings with you? Do you want the clouds to fly away? Do you want to see the sun again? Then don't wait for your circumstances to get better. Circumstances always change. Things go up, things go down. Learn contentment by satisfying your soul with the things that don't change. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. I'm talking about his person. I'm talking about his work. If your joy is in Jesus Christ, you will never be disappointed. And that's what Peter says here. Look at this text. It'll be healing to your bones. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You see how God fills us with inexpressible joy when we place all of our satisfaction and all of our faith in the person of Christ? Do you see that? What's the point? How do I apply this? If your, fa- if your finances are disrupting your joy, if you're having financial troubles, then stop placing your joy there. Stop delighting in your external blessings. Financial success is good, and we should give thanks for it. But money grows wings and it flies away. Many of you have experienced what that's like. So why place your joy in something that can grow wings and fly away, never to return? Why place your joy in things that can change? Jesus Christ says that the one who comes to him, he will certainly not cast out. That's something that can't be taken away from you. So put your joy there. Come to him. Be satisfied in his arms. Be satisfied with his blood. Be satisfied and content with his intercession. Find your fulfillment in reading his word and coming to know him more fully. That's what I'm talking about. Someone who puts their joy in Christ. They can never be moved. There's more to say there, especially about what it means to take joy in his person. But more on that another time. Suffice it to say, Our long-term and unshakable joy is based on the person and work of Christ. So we've seen that our joy is based on the proven genuineness of our faith. Our joy is based on the person and work of Christ. Third, our joy is actually, this may surprise you, our joy is actually in part based on our perceived collective progress in the faith. I'll say it again. Our joy is based on our perceived collective progress in the faith. You say, really? My Christian joy is supposed to be based on the spiritual progress of my church? Yes, this is very biblical. I didn't say that this joy was unshakable, okay? We see places in the Bible where Paul's joy is turned to grief when he considers the progress of certain churches. But when I came to study the scriptures with respect to spiritual joy, I was surprised. What I found was that again and again and again in the New Testament, we see that our joy increases when our brothers grow. My joy grows when I see my church growing, when I see my church being faithful. 
Just, just to show you, let me read you a handful of texts that talk about this. John, the Apostle John, as an elder, he says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. That's a bold statement, right? I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. 1 Thessalonians has several references to this kind of joy. Listen, this is from chapter two. Paul says, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? You see how Paul regards these brothers as his joy? Even the crown of his exaltation. Again, he says it in the next verse. He says, for you are our glory and joy. We're not all ministers of the gospel like Paul was, okay? But you can relate, right? Do you feel that way about your church? Is your joy increased when your church grows, when your church is being faithful, when your church is prospering? Listen to it again. Paul really means it. He says it in chapter three. Again, he says, for what thanks, what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Paul is emphatic about that point. Listen, it's not only the minister of the gospel who's filled with joy at the collective progress and growth of the church. The church itself, you should be filled with joy when God's kingdom is advanced. Even if you're not a pastor, you should take joy in the growth of the church. From Acts 15. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria. And and what were they doing on this journey? Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing what? Great joy to all the brethren. All the brethren. Not just the leaders of the church. They were bringing great joy to all the brethren when they were hearing of the advancement of God's kingdom. The conversion of sinners. The growth of the church should fill you with great joy. So, our joy is in part based on our perceived collective progress in the faith. When Christ's kingdom is advanced, you take joy. We've seen the essence of joy or the flame of the lantern, that joy is the long-term emotional effect that the application of good news has on us. And we need to beware, we need to be cautious that there is such a thing as a false joy like a rocky soil, shallow soil. And you can prevent having this temporary joy by making sure that the gospel is taken deep root within the soil of your heart. And remember, attaining to Christian joy doesn't mean that sorrowing and grieving is necessarily wrong. It's okay to be sad in many cases. We see that in Job and in other places. Christian joy exists in the midst of temporal sorrows, and that's okay. So we've seen the the source of joy, or the oil for the lantern, that our Christian joy is based on the proven genuineness of our faith. Our Christian joy is based on the person and work of Christ, and our Christian joy is based on the collective progress of the church in the faith. Lastly, consider with me the attainment of joy. And this is like the warm glow that we feel that we feel from the lantern. If you remember our proposition, right? I said, Christian joy or spiritual joy is a long-term gladness based on the proven genuineness of our faith, the person and work of Christ, and the collective progress of the church. And it's attained through an understanding of the truth. This is our point here. This is where we're going in a second. It's attained through an understanding of the truth that we apply by the Holy Spirit in putting off wrong thoughts and putting on right thoughts. Notice the final segment of that proposition. Your Christian joy is attained when you understand the truth and by the Holy Spirit, you put off wrong thoughts and you put on right thoughts. Somebody might ask, how can I be joyful? 
You've told me what joy is. You've told me where it comes from, but how can I get it? How can I be joyful? That's what we're after. And remember, we're talking about rejoicing in the gospel. The Bible describes Christians as joyful because of spiritual blessings. They've received the gospel. They have an imperishable inheritance. They see their brothers and sisters persevering in the faith. They have an eye toward Christ who they love. So Christians are joyful, not just because of their temporal goods, but because of eternal goods, spiritual goods. We're called to be content with temporal things, but, with, uh, but the truth source of our joy is in spiritual things, spiritual goods. The person and work of Christ, the proven genuineness of our faith, and our progressive growth as a body. So the question naturally arises, and, and this is the whole point, okay? If you haven't been listening, listen now. How can I be joyful despite the things that are going on in my life? To put it another way, how could Job be joyful when everything was taken from him? Christian joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So how does the Holy Spirit produce true joy in the heart of a Christian? That's what we're after. I'll say it again. Let's ask ourselves the question, how does the Holy Spirit produce joy in my heart? I know that he does it, but how does he do it? Remember the end of our proposition. Understanding, putting off wrong thoughts, putting on right thoughts. So the first step in attaining Christian joy is an understanding of the truth. And we've been laboring to understand the truth. I've already told you what joy is and where it comes from. But listen, listen to me, listen to me. We've barely touched the fringe of the truth that you need for a fullness of joy. If joy comes from understanding the truth and you struggle to be joyful, maybe you should value the Bible more. Have you ever thought about that? If you're a complainer, maybe the reason is because you don't value your time in the Bible enough. If you feel like nothing goes your way, then maybe you should guard your Bible reading time, right? You catch my drift? Here's what I'm saying. Studying the Bible, studying, studying this, right? Studying this has a direct relationship with the joy that you experience. Reading the Bible has a direct relationship to the joy that you have. How can I make that claim? Because the source of joy, the ultimate source of joy is the person and work of Christ. Turn back to 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter 1. Look at what it says. I want you to see it for yourself. I'm not just making an empty claim here. We'll start again at verse six. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this, in what? In salvation. In this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here it is. And though you have not seen him, it's an interesting point that he makes. Remember what I was saying. Studying the Bible has a direct relationship with your joy. But here, Peter says that we don't see Christ. Well, how can I rejoice in Christ if I don't see him? How can I know anything about him? If I'm going to rejoice in Christ, where can I find him? Keep reading. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You see how he goes back to salvation? He starts talking about salvation again. In verse five, he says that our salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. So our salvation, with respect to the component of salvation that he's referring to here, our salvation is yet to be revealed. It hasn't been consummated. 
hasn't been revealed yet. And this is the unseen salvation. The unseen salvation that's the source of our joy. And so is the person of Christ. We don't see him either. You see that? The source of our joy, salvation, it's not revealed yet. And Christ, the source of our joy, we haven't seen him either. So the question is, how can I rejoice in something that I don't see? How can I know anything about it, right? Here's the solution, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets, that's where you find it. You find your salvation in the prophets. You find Christ in the prophets. In other words, studying the Bible has a direct relationship with your joy. These prophets, verse 11, they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You see how the prophets are where we find Christ? Christ is a, he's the object of our joy. He's the source of our joy. And we find Jesus Christ in these prophets who declared to us his suffering and his glory, right? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. You see how we find both salvation and Christ in the prophets? So scripture is the way that you see your salvation. The Old, the Old Testament canon was the Bible of the New Testament church. They didn't have the rest of the New Testament yet. That's why he was referring to it as the prophets. Scripture is the way that you see Christ. Study the Bible or you will never be joyful. The Holy Spirit works through his word and you will never experience true joy until you are plunged into the pages of scripture. Read the Bible. Be in it. Don't let the words just pass over your eyes when you're reading it. Let them be digested by your heart. Let me give you an analogy for why this is important and how it relates to your joy. It's like thirst. Say a man comes home at the end of a long day and he forgot to drink water because of how busy he was. This happened to me a lot. I don't drink water anyway, but it happened to me a lot. Okay. Now he's thirsty. He's thirsty. He goes to the kitchen and he grabs his Brita filter or whatever and he finds that it's empty. He's thirsty and the vessel that's supposed to have water is empty. So what does he do? He fills it up with water and then he drinks. It's the same with joy. If you're thirsty for joy, fill up your mind and your heart with the water of God's word so that you can tap into it when your circumstances tempt you to discontentment. Fill your cup and do it every day so that when you come home and you're thirsty, your pitcher is full of water. You got it? Every day. Yes, read the Bible every day. Meditate on it day and night, as Psalm, two, as Psalm 1 says. Eat the scripture the way that you eat food, as Job says. Man lives on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So it's not just a portion of the Bible, it's every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God that we live. You can only drink water when your cup has been filled. So you can only tap into the Bible when it's been informed, into your understanding when it's informed by the word of God. Prepare yourselves. Here's, here's the point that I'm making to you, okay? Prepare yourselves for trials ahead of time by reading the Bible. That way you'll have an understanding for when you need it. You're prepared. So the first step to Christian joy is being in the Bible, informing your understanding. The second step mentioned in our proposition is applying the truth by the power of the Spirit, putting off wrong thoughts and putting on right thoughts. What do I mean? Well, I say that we're to do this by the power of the Spirit because the Spirit is the one who actually produces that joy within us. That's how God works in us, is by the power, the inward operation of the Holy Spirit. That's why joy is called a fruit of the Spirit. It's clear all over the New Testament that the Holy, Spirit is, the Holy Spirit is responsible for the application of the work of Christ. He's the agent of our conversion, and he's the agent of our sanctification as well. We can only present the good fruit of joy to the Father on the basis of the work of Christ through the agency and power of the Holy Spirit, you see? 
The only way that we can produce this good fruit of joy to the Father is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on your own strength, in other words. But the practical second step to attaining joy is the putting off of right, wrong thoughts and the putting on of right thoughts. I didn't say putting off bad thoughts and putting on good thoughts, but right and wrong thoughts. I put it this way um, because I wanted to emphasize that joy, it doesn't come from believing what's false. The Bible doesn't teach that name it, claim it stuff, okay? The Bible doesn't teach that positive thinking is necessarily biblical thinking. The Bible teaches that real joy, true joy, is attained by thinking true thoughts in faith. That comes from the word of God. You take the promises of God and you apply them to your circumstances. In closing, let me read to you a couple of passages that teach this. First, turn to Colossians chapter three. What am I proving to you? I'm proving to you that you need, in your circumstances, in your trials, you need to put off wrong thoughts and you need to put on right thoughts. And what I mean by that is that you need to get your mind in the right place. Your mind needs to be set on heavenly things. Your heart, your affections, your treasure needs to be in heaven. As Pastor Dale was telling us earlier. Look at Colossians chapter three, beginning at verse one. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above as opposed to what? not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Do you see how Paul, he's instructing us about where we should have our minds. That's what Paul's doing. He's essentially saying our affections shouldn't be tangled by the common things of this world that are fading away. Our affections need to be in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's, that's putting off wrong thoughts and putting on right thoughts. That's what I mean by that. Your affections need to be in the right place. Your treasure needs to be in the right place. One more text and we'll wrap up here. Matthew chapter six. Listen to Christ's directives. And this comes immediately before a lengthy discourse about curing our anxiety. It just so happens that the cure for anxiety, it focuses on the same truths that are necessary for us to have Christian joy. If you wanna be cured of anxiety, then your treasure needs to be in heaven. If you want to have Christian joy, your treasure needs to be in heaven. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You see why it would be a bad idea to put your joy in things? They fade away. So where's my treasure then? He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do we put off bad thoughts? Don't let the things of this world be where your treasure is. Jesus uses the word treasure because that's the most precious thing to someone. Don't let anything be more precious to you than your heavenly possessions, you see? Your treasure is the thing that means the most to you. So cherish your salvation. Cherish Christ. Cherish the rewards that the Father will give you on the last day. These things can't be taken away from us and you will find true lasting joy. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, our prayer to you 
is that you would give us the Holy Spirit. We are needy children. We are hungry children. We are thirsty children. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we know that the only way that we can grow in righteousness is by the inward operation, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask you for him. And you are not a miserly or dispassionate father, but you are compassionate. You pity us. Like a child comes to his father for bread, you give us bread. You don't give us something else. You don't give us a stone. So we ask you for the Holy Spirit, believing that you would give him to us. We pray that we would be a people characterized by true, lasting Christian spiritual joy. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.